Hello, welcome to the LifeBridge podcast. We exist to practice the way of Jesus, participating in God's kingdom coming in Dover as it is in heaven. My name is Tyler Saldana and I'm the pastor of our church community. We are so grateful that you're checking out our church's podcast. We pray that the Spirit uses this podcast to encourage you in your following of Jesus. Sunday of Epiphany. This Wednesday is what's called Ash Wednesday, which will be start the season of Lent. Uh, and so some churches typically do a Wednesday night service or something like that, or a Wednesday all day thing, but uh, we don't uh, do that here. But um, that is where we're at in the church calendar. So this is the last Sunday of Epiphany. This is also uh, what's called the Transfiguration. Um, big word. We don't really use that word anywhere else in the world. Uh, it essentially means transformation. It is the same word that is translated in other areas as transformed. So the transformation of Jesus uh, might be more uh, apt in this setting. So I'm going to read this morning's passage. I'll read our opening prayer and then we will begin. So we are in Matthew's version of the transfiguration, starting in verse 1 uh, of chapter 17. Matthew writes, uh, six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here, if you wish I will make three dwellings here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, suddenly a a bright cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud a voice said, This is my son, the beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Get up and do not be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus ordered them, tell no one about the vision until after the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let me read this morning's prayer. Holy God, mighty and immortal, you are beyond our knowing, yet we see your glory in the face of Jesus Christ whose compassion illumines the world. Transform us into the likeness of the love of Christ who renewed our humanity so that we may share in his divinity. The same Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit forever. Amen. Uh, This is Candace Dirksen. Have any of us heard this name before? Uh, Do we have a picture? No? Oh, there we go. The, the older gal, her name is Candace Dirksen. Well, uh, in his book, David and Goliath, Malcolm Gladwell recounts her story. In late fall of 84, 13-year-old Candace called home to ask her mom if she could have a ride home from school. Now, the Dirksons live in Winnipeg, Manitoba, on the prairies of central Canada. This is from 
uh, Gladwell's book. And at that time of year, the temperature outside was well below freezing. Candace was 13. She was giggling, flirting with a young boy from her school. She wanted her mother to come and pick her up. Uh, Wilma, her mother, did a series of calculations in her head. The Dirksons had one car. Wilma had to pick up her husband, Cliff, from work, but he wouldn't be finished for another hour. She had two other children, a two-year-old and a nine-year-old. She could hear them quarreling in the other room. She would have to bundle them up first, pick up Candace, and then go and pick up her husband. It would be an hour in the car with three hungry children. There was a bus. Candace was 13, no longer a child. The house was a mess. The mom asked, Candace, do you have money for the bus? Yep. I can't pick you up, her mother said. Take the bus. Dirksen returned to her vacuuming. She folded laundry. She bustled about. Then she stopped. Something seemed wrong. She looked at the clock. Candace should have been home by now. The weather outside had suddenly turned colder. It was snowing. She remembered that Candace hadn't dressed warmly. She began to pace between the window in the front of the house and the kitchen window in the back overlooking the alleyway. Candace might come in from either direction. But the minutes passed, it was time to pick up her husband. She packed up her other two children, got in the car, and drove slowly on, along Talbot Avenue, the road that connected the Dirksons' neighborhood to Candace's school. She peered inside the windows of the 7-Eleven where her daughter sometimes lingered. She drove to the school. The, do the doors were locked. Mom, where is she? Her nine-year-old daughter asked. They drove to Cliff's office. I can't find Candace, she told her husband. I'm worried. Uh, the family goes on to report her missing. They conduct a community-wide search party. Uh, have you seen Candace posters? Uh, they, they cover their city. And seven weeks later, uh, only a quarter mile from their home, Candace was found in a shed. Her hands and feet had been tied, and she had, been froze, to, she had froze to death. After her funeral, Cliff and Wilma Dirksen agreed to speak to the press. Uh, and this is a big deal up there. We might be more acquainted with uh, violence in our nation, uh, but it's, it's, these are a little less common in areas up there, and in particular in the 80s. And Gladwell, Gladwell records, uh, a reporter asks the Dirksons, how do you feel about whoever did this to Candace? Cliff responded, we would like to know who the person or persons are so we could share, hopefully, a love that seems to be missing in these people's lives. Wilma went next. Our main concern was to find Candace. We found her. She continued, I can't say at this point I forgive this person, but the stress was on the phrase, at this point, indicating that she would at some point forgive him. We, or whoever this person was. We have all done something dreadful in our lives or have felt the urge to. Now, in a, in a podcast interview about his interviews with the Dirksons, Gladwell recounts it was Wilma's Christian faith that permitted her to grant forgiveness to her daughter's killer. If faith can do that, then to my mind, it has to be real. The reason why I ask if many of you are familiar with the Dirksons is because they are a Mennonite family up there. So, 
of part of the Mennonite community. And this passage before us this morning, we will see Jesus journey up the mountain with three of his closest friends. There, Peter, James, and John will catch a glimpse of the glory of Jesus. Uh, but in order to grasp the significance of what's been referred to as the transfiguration, we need to begin in the previous chapter, actually. So prior to hiking up the mountain, the writer of what's known as Matthew's Gospel uh, gives us a scene where Jesus foretells of an upcoming and, and an inevitable valley. So it's only after struggling through the dry and humid valley that one can truly witness the breathtaking views of the mountain's peak. So we're going to actually start back at Matthew 16, starting in verse 13, because that is actually what sets up our passage this morning. It's in the juxtaposition of the dark nights of the soul that the bright stars of God's grace can truly be seen for what they are, otherworldly. So I don't have uh, this passage up on the screen, but I am going to start in verse 13. If you don't have your Bible, uh, you can listen to me. But I'm just going to read it through. I might make a few comments, but the bulk of our message is actually on chapter 17. It is just invaluable to this morning's passage. So, chapter 16, starting in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, but others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Now, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered him, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. This rock being the confession that he is the Son of the living God. Jesus continues, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. Then he sternly ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. But from that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And a big flip from Peter right here. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke Jesus. What a bold move, huh, to rebuke Jesus. I wonder if he's laughing on this side of death, realizing what he did. Saying, God forbid it, Lord, this must never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. For you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Uh, some might be like, wait, is God calling Peter Satan? Uh, there's a big theological debate here as to what this exactly means, but you know, essentially the spirit of Satan, um, similar to Antichrist, that Antichrist being not just one person, but it's a spirit of a movement against Christ. Some tend to take it as one person, but it tends to be more of a movement of the kingdom of darkness. He says, uh, oh, sorry. Then Jesus told his disciples, if any want to become my followers, 
let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit them if they gain the whole world but forfeit their entire life? Or what will they give in return for their life? For the Son of Man is to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay everyone for what he has done. Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Then, that's where we get our passage, six days later. That passage right there, that indicator, six days later, Matthew is tying this to what we just read. So we have this mixed bag of ups and downs for Peter. He declares Jesus as the Messiah, but then he uh, tells him, he rebukes Jesus and says, no, you can't go die. That's not what the Messiah is to, to be. That's not the leader we want you to be. That's not who we're looking for. But then Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, and actually, if you want to be a part of this, you're going to have to do a similar thing. You're going to have to take up your cross and follow me. And then that's when we get to our passage here. That he takes Peter and James and his brothers John and led them up the high mountain by themselves. Six days... Um, it's interesting, uh, th th this story is in the three synoptic Gospels, so that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They all kind of work together. Uh, if you're familiar with the story, uh, some of the Gospels have different amounts of days. Uh, we shouldn't be deterred by that or, or, or um, disturbed by that discrepancy. Uh, it, it just means that that detail isn't that significant. Uh, but yes, Luke's Gospel says about eight days later. Uh, and so there is a little discrepancy there if you'd like to learn more about those little minor discrepancies in the Gospels or, or Scriptures. We can discuss that more later, but it is important, important to not downplay that reality or try to explain that away. Um, so what Jesus is referring to here, though, and what Matthew is alluding to here is actually Exodus 24, which is one of the other passages for this morning, and I'm not going to totally turn there. But if you were to take the time to read there, if you're familiar with this story, Moses uh, goes up with uh, his council of roughly 70 elders, and he goes up with a couple other people. He goes up the mountain, and this is where he waits for a certain amount of days, then he receives what we believe to be the commandments. It doesn't explicitly say that, but we receive some tablets. God's presence is there. There's clouds that come that indicate God's presence, there's this whole thing. And so this is very much drawing back to that story. This is part of Matthew from the beginning telling us, showing us that Jesus is the greater Moses, that Moses was just a shadow of what was to come, and that Jesus would do what Moses did, but that much more. Um, Moses would go up to receive the law, and Jesus would go up the mountain to, re to bring start bringing life through the law. Um, and so, we keep going. Verse 2. He was transfigured before them. Like I said, this is translated transformed. If you read Romans 12 too, that be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's the same exact word. The word is metamorphosis, if you've heard that word. Uh, we kind of utilize that sometimes more in science fiction where someone metamorphosizes. And if you read science fiction or superhero stuff. Anyways, DC Comics has a as a hero called Metamorpho. Uh, anyways, so he says, 
His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became dazzling white. Think, think bleach white. Frederick, Frederick Buechner writes of this. It's a strange scene, as there is in the Gospels. Even without the voice from the cloud to explain it, they had no doubt what they were witnessing. It was Jesus of Nazareth, all right, the man they'd tramped many a dusty mile with, whose mother and brother they knew, and brothers they knew. The one they'd seen as hungry, tired, footsore as the rest of them, but it was also the Messiah, the Christ in his glory. It was the holiness of the man shining through his humanness, his face so afire, with it they were almost blinded. Even with us, something like that happens once in a while. The face of a man walking his child in a park, of a woman picking peas in the garden, of sometimes even the unlikeliest person listening to a concert say, or or standing barefoot in the sand watching the waves roll in, or just having a, a beer at a Saturday baseball game in July. Every once and so often, something so touching, so incandescent, so alive transfigures the human face that it's almost beyond bearing. It's as if they are um, experiencing pockets of the kingdom or of heaven here and now. Just little glimpses. And that's what Buchner says is happening here for these people. They're getting a glimpse of what is to come. Matthew continues in verse 3, Suddenly there appeared to them Moses and Elijah. Why? Kind of random, right? Um, it, it seems random. It is just like, wait, why are these people who are just humans, why did they get called uh, to, to come and, and manifest in this manner? talking with him, talking with Jesus. Uh, early Christian thinkers thought that they represented the law and the prophets. So Moses represented the law, Elijah represented the prophets, and so this is potentially one explanation as to why they're there with Jesus, that Jesus is this fulfillment of what came in the law and the prophets in the Hebrew scriptures. Um, it's not totally, I mean, it's an interesting theory. Others uh, that both experienced odd endings in their life, if you're familiar, Moses we know died, but we don't, I believe at the end of Deuteronomy it says no one knows where he's buried. And so there's kind of this like, do we know where and how he died? It, it's a weird thing because typically uh, the patriarchs in particular, we, they recounted their deaths and burials pretty, pretty well. Uh, and so it's an odd one. And then Elijah got taken up into heaven. He never died. And so that's one theory as to why they're here and that Jesus, too, would have a odd ending to his earthly life. Uh, I don't like that one as much. Um, Craig Keener, he's a New Testament background uh, theologian. He writes that Jewish people expected the return of both Elijah and Moses at the end of the age. And it's kind of foreshadowed throughout the scriptures, but there are even in some of the minor prophets some of these allusions, but we don't need to get to it. But that's essentially why they are there. Um, keep going in verse 5. He says, While he was still speaking, suddenly a brown... Oh, sorry, verse 4, sorry. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three dwellings here, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Why is he wanting to make dwellings for them? In particular, the other two, right? Jesus manifesting in this manner... I think Peter's getting this idea that he's, he's potentially some sort of God or deity. He might be the Messiah. This, is, this might be what we're starting to understand. But why for two 
human beings. I'm also curious, how does he know they're Moses and Elijah? It's not like he looked them up on Instagram or Facebook and was like, oh yeah, that's him. I've seen that picture in my Sunday school book. How do they know he's Moses and Elijah? It's kind of a weird little detail, right? Um, just a fun little question. I have no answer for that question, but that's where my mind goes. Um, but anyways, uh, so, but the question, the bigger question is, why is Peter wanting to set up these altars or tents? If you recall, if you're unfamiliar with Old Testament story, uh, the God of the Old Testament often had to be, um, his presence was confined to the tent, or uh, some of your translations may say, this one says dwellings. Uh, and so, similar to the tabernacle, it is, he is setting up, he's asking to set up a space for your presence to dwell, because there's something bigger, greater beyond uh, my human understanding here. Should we create something to confine this, to keep this here, to not lose it, to not miss out? Another uh, view of this is that uh, it's more of a memorial, and so commemorating uh, something that has happened, uh, but I think it is more the latter, that um, he is trying to tabernacle, essentially, set up a space for the, each of these people's presence to be confined and remain so that they can dwell there, stay there. And then he says, well, verse 5, you know, so Peter's offering this, like, Jesus, can we do this? And what happens? While he was still speaking... Suddenly, a bright cloud overshadowed them. As if God is interrupting the suggestion of Peter, right? Like, you're not getting it. We don't need this. A bright cloud overshadows them. Now, a bright cloud, again, this is an allusion back to Moses in Exodus 24. And light, in the Synoptic Gospels, it's utilized to indicate revelation. So whenever you see light or brightness, it's usually indicating some sort of revelation to us in the Gospels. That, um, yeah, that something new is about to be disclosed or some new understanding or revelation or, or witness. And then the clouds often symbolize God's presence. Again, this, this actually would go back to Matthew 13, but we don't have to go there. But it, Matthew says it overshadows them. The, the them, it's, it's a little vague as to who the them is, but it seems to be uh, Moses and Elijah because he just sees Jesus after that. So it's as if Peter's getting caught up in all this other stuff and God's like, no, like it's about Jesus. Let's block out this other stuff because you can't handle, you're starting to look at cool, great things. Moses and Elijah, what I'm doing with them and what I've done in and through them, but it's taking your eyes off of the main thing. And so he, he overshadows them and then, God writes, or God says, this is my son, the beloved, with him I am well pleased. Where have we heard that before? Any, anyone recall? Jesus' baptism. Yeah, word for word, Jesus' baptism. The thing that is added here, that God says, listen to him. But the same exact words, word for word, and he says, listen to him, adhere to him. Keep going in verse 6. He says, When the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground, and they were overcome by fear. Now, fear is this common response to God's presence in the Hebrew Scriptures, and, and we see this happen quite often, right? Even in 
some of the resurrection accounts or uh, when the angels come in some of the gospel accounts when they come in the beginning to pronounce you know, Jesus' birth and so forth. So that is a common indicator there. That there is a response that something greater is manifesting amongst them, namely God's presence. But Jesus came and he touched them. And he said, get up and do not be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus alone. So, um, weird passage. Literally everything I looked into for this week. Um, and, and I recall, Sarah, you preached on the Transfiguration last year. Uh, and I was almost like, make her do it again. Because it is a weird passage to preach on. Uh, and almost every commentary and preacher's resource said this is such a weird Sunday to preach in the church calendar, because it's like, what does this mean to us? So, uh, trying to have a couple practical points for us. How does this passage and the transfiguration of Jesus speak to the lives of Jesus' followers today? So we're going to consider how to apply it to three different categories of our lives. Uh, as the church, as a local church, and as individuals. So I'm going to start, yeah. Big, broad view, the global church, and go all the way down to you individually, me individually. So, let's start with number one, as the church. i got to set up some details here before we get to the application here, but this is kind of what came to mind as I was thinking it through. So, in Pew, in, uh, Pew Research Center's 2014 Religious Landscape Study, 8% of the U.S. population either switched or left evangelicalism, and more broadly, the church. And that's roughly 25 million people. Uh, that's a lot of people. Um, I think that may be more people than our state, yes? Um, a lot of people. And if you're unfamiliar, we are a part of the evangelical movement. There's Protestantism, uh, Christendom has Protestantism, it has Orthodox Church, and it has Roman Catholicism. That is Christendom, that is Christianity. And then within Protestantism, there's all these different movements. There's mainline and evangelical is kind of how we divide it up here in Western culture, in particular in the States. Um, but then even within Protestantism, we would be a pro... Well, we're kind of a cousin, huh, Dennis? I, I actually should think that through. We're sort of a cousin. We may not be Protestants, but we are definitely like... We might be invited to the family reunion, and people might be like, they're not blood, but, the, you know, they're family. They're family. They're, it's kind of like that. You know, everybody's got those family members that you're like, how are they related? No one knows, but they're family. Uh, that might be kind of where we fall with the Anabaptist movement and so forth. But we are evangelical Anabaptists, so we've kind of grafted ourselves in a weird way within Protestantism. All that to say, we, are, we, we have a foot in both. That's why Ivana is called Evangelical Anabaptist. So this is speaking of part of our movement, part of our branch of Christendom. So, while Christianity has been growing globally in Asia, Africa, and South America, the church has been shrinking in the West, meaning much of Europe, United States, and Canada. Uh, so, for decades, the evangelical church in America, uh, we've sort of, I, I heard this even in school early on, we brushed this off and said it's, it's just the mainline churches, the liberal, progressive churches that are losing people. And that is true. However, we now know that that's not simply the case. It's not only confined to the churches that might be getting 
more liberal, if not way liberal, and they're not even, they're more universalist and may not only worship Jesus and, and similar types of things. Uh, Daniel Cox, in light of the Pew Research study, he summarized that nearly one-third of white Americans raised in evangelical Christian households leave their childhood faith. One-third. The rates of disaffiliation are even higher among young adults. 39% of those raised in evangelical Christian uh, evangelical Christian no longer identify as such in, the, in their adulthood. As a result, uh, the white evangelical Protestant population in the U.S. has fallen over the past decade. So within 10 years, we've fallen, dropping from 23 to 17 percent. That's from 2006 to 2016. Uh, but equally troubling for those concerned about the vitality of evangelical Christianity uh, white evangelical Protestants, as an example, are aging. The median age of our broader body in the U.S. is 55. Uh, it's very old for a median age. That means we are drastically losing and not growing at a younger demographic. We're actually losing people here in the States, and that's one example. Uh, the reason why they are able to take the metrics of white evangelical Protestants in particular is because we have been the predominant uh, demographic within white evangelical Protestantism in the states. Um, last thing that Michael Gerson, he was a speechwriter of former U.S. President George W. Bush, he wrote that about 26% of Americans 65 and older identify as white evangelical Protestant. But among those 18 to 29, the figure is 8%. So a little more than a quarter of our senior population, we're down to 8% from 18 to 29. Why does demographic uh, abyss does not cause greater panic? Panic concerning existence of evangelicalism is a major force uh, in the United States, is a mystery and a scandal. Um, I'm realizing I read that poorly. Um, <laughs> I sometimes think I have dyslexia, I apologize. Anyways, why we are essentially saying why we are not discussing this drastic drop-off with younger generations ought to be a scandal. Now, um, Ronald J. Allen, he's, a, he's a, other, a fellow minister, he writes in light of the transfiguration for this type of, um, these present-day concerns for us here as a global church, but then church in the states. At the transfiguration, God gives the church a vision of the future. He gives us a vision of the future. They get this little glimpse, Peter, James, and John, of what is to come. Now Jesus, as he will be on the day God resurrects him, and as he will be when he returns to complete the work of replacing the old world with the new. Yes, we get a little foreshadow. We get a taste. The resurrection is the definitive sign that the path of transformation towards the new age is already underway. Now, Matthew wants the church to believe that the participation in the realm or this kingdom of God is worth suffering through the fractiousness uh, they are experiencing within the synagogue, uh, with the synagogue down the street, and within their own community at the time. And so here's what this means for us. There's this 
Here's the juxtaposition played out in modern day. This is why we looked at 16 and 17, because 16 has and 17 together shows us the ups and the downs, the good with the bad, uh, the wins with the losses. And we are dealing with more losses than wins uh, numerically, right? And, and culturally, some of us might say. Uh, but in his recent piece in The Atlantic, I find this interesting. If you, are we familiar with what's going on with Asbury right now and, and, and the college going on down there? Uh, and if you're unfamiliar, there's been a revival service that's been going on for almost two weeks, nonstop, round the clock, spontaneous, no, you know, rock star pastor or anything like that. It just started, and there's been a lot of really credible reports from what's happening there, and people traveling from all over the country to come and experience their uh, feeling and, and um, experiencing a taste of God's presence. A lot of stuff going on there. We would call that a, ro- a revival. Uh, the interesting thing, I found this piece later, but this piece was published in the Atlantic just a few days before from Timothy Keller called American Christianity is Due for a Revival. Uh, I thought, oh, that's funny. It was published just a few days before the revival started happening at Asbury. But he, he highlights for us, for a global church, a few areas in need of growth. One, the church needs to learn how to speak compellingly to non-Christian people. We need to learn how to speak compellingly to non-Christian people. Now, what does that mean? Uh, Previously, what was compelling to non-Christian people was Jesus died for you. Um, You can be saved from your sins. You don't have to go to hell. Those types of things. We'd use phrases like the Bible says, or we'd ask questions like, if you die today, where are you going to go? Where are you going to end up, heaven or hell? Do you know where you're going? Uh, the reality is that most people in the States now, and in particular generations from millennial down, Gen Z, and, and it looks even less so than, than my generation, uh, but Gen X prior to my millennial generation had a similar decrease. Um, those questions do not matter, and those statements do not matter. To say the Bible says is not a compelling argument. Because to them, who cares? It's an old book that's outdated and says all these patriarchal things and endorses slavery and has weird things. These are, these are them saying this, not me. Um, but these are the mantras. These are the rebuttals. Or where are you going when you die? To that, you know, we're literally, I just moved from a state that made it legal to uh, compost your body so that we can become plants when we die. Okay, so, um, so we can become a beautiful tree and be a part of nourishing the earth. There's nowhere we're going when we're going to die for, for a lot of people in the West now. These are not compelling. Uh, these, this is not speaking compellingly to non-Christian people, in particular young generations. The thing that Keller points out is that up until recently, for the last few millennium, and, and in, largely in Western civilization, it has been a Christianized culture. We, even if people didn't believe in a God or believe in Jesus or, or want to follow him, they could sit in a message on a Sunday morning and agree with 95% of it and maybe even feel encouraged, nourished, challenged by it, whatever. But it may not be to follow Jesus. It just might be a little more self-helpy. And they might agree with some of the ethical norms and so forth. However, Keller points out that nowadays we are likely more communicating something that's offensive. And we have to be, we have to accept that reality, but then also learn 
try and think through what is actually compelling, what are the questions that our generations, in particular younger generations that are not even coming to church, not necessarily leaving, just not even coming, um, what questions are they asking? What questions of meaning and hope and loneliness and isolation and um, discovery and um, all these different types of things that they are asking, we need to try and answer their questions, not get them to ask, not give them the answers to questions that previous generations were asking. We have to come to grips that there's been a turning point in this non-Christian culture. Uh, second thing he says we need an area of growth is we need to unite justice and righteousness. Unite justice and righteousness. He points out that liberal churches are all about justice, social justice. They're out there marching when any sort of potential remote thing, whether it be like a police shooting or something like that, they're already, their default is to side with the, the victim. And they are all about, but they're also doing a lot of wonderful things. I'm not saying those aren't wonderful. I, oh, I need to walk that back. I don't know. It's case by case. Um, but you get the point. Their inclination is towards justice, whereas uh, theologically conservative churches might be more towards uh, truth, orthodoxy, righteousness, living a morally upright life. He's saying we need to get back to blending both. Jesus came uh, for truth, uh, calling worshipers to worship in spirit and truth, justice and right doctrine. Uh, another thing he points out is we need to embrace the global and multi-ethnic character of Christianity. By 2050, it's projected that one in five Americans will not be, have been born here. It's pretty crazy. Uh, and I believe at that point, too, um, the tipping point will happen that we will be a majority uh, non-white population in the states uh, at this point, too. We need to embrace the multi-ethnic character of Christianity. It is a global thing, and allowing cultures to speak in even their ways of worship and conversation and things like that. Uh, there's some interesting things there. Um, and if we've ever been a part of mission trips or things like that where we've gone to churches in other cultures, our services can be quite different, right? Um, the way we do life, you know, even from us coming from across the same country, we, we do life differently. Um, I don't put out applesauce at every meal. Uh, <laughs> I had this talk with my mom last night because she was like, I ate applesauce with tamales. Disgusting, right? Anyways, um, and, I'm, and my dad's like, my mom's Hungarian. My dad's Mexican. He's like, what is going on? Anyways, um, but no, even within the states, right? You know, there's different categories and, and, and cultural differences. We need to start embracing because even within our town, we have very um, diverse cultural and ethnic expressions and how we can be a part of something different, uh, uniting, blending, making something beautiful, a tapestry of the character and kingdom of God. And then the last thing he points out that we are called to strike a dynamic balance between innovation and conservation, meaning keep the teaching. Um, hold to the historic teaching of the church. The message stays the same, but we need to hold more open-handedly the method. So that is the way the early church has worked. Church has not always looked this way. Serve, you know, and, and I'm not, please don't take this the wrong way. Like, so we had, some of were like, hey, churches don't have tables. Um, 
Churches have had tables before. Uh, it used to be in a living room around a dinner meal. It usually actually never used to have this. So, um, and remember a few decades ago, we never had this, right? We had hymnals, or we never had microphones, or we didn't have a church that wasn't a rectangle. Um, there, there's just there's variances of that, and so not to say we need to bring the tails back. I'm not saying that. Um, but the means, the method of the message can adapt and evolve, and we should hold that open-handedly. What we hold tightly is the message. We hold tightly the message. But the message, or the means of that message um, going forth can be adapted, it can evolve, it can change, and, and it does. If we go to underground churches in Asia, they are literally underground churches. They are meals. They are just very different. Some of them, they can't even talk out of fear because if someone hears, so they are silent services. They are silent gatherings where they are praying in a room together. If we did that here, that sounds weird, right? But no, that's, that's a worship service for a certain cultural expression. And so realizing that church is not in a box. The way we do service, the way we worship together can adapt and we can evolve based on our community, right? That's what Keller is saying there. Strike a dynamic balance between innovation and conservation. Conserve the gospel. Be willing to innovate as the culture innovates. Um, we also have maybe been a part of churches where we don't innovate, right? Where there's no microphones, there's no speakers. And I'm not against that, but sometimes that is with the thought of that's where the culture's going. And that's not the only reason we should reject something as such. So anyways, uh, and then he points out three things that need to happen in a significant sector of the church in order for us to see renewal. He says, escape from political captivity. We need to have a union of extraordinary prayer like what's happening in Asbury. He references that every time revivals happened, or oftentimes when revivals happened in cultures and countries and people groups, there are people committed to 24-7 prayer together. Um, and there are these overnight things where people are tapping each other out. There are prayer movements that they are submitting and asking, pleading with God's Spirit to move. From my, recount, from my understanding, a lot of the Asbury profs shared that, you know, we've been praying for this for decades and that perhaps we could be a place that a, a movement of the Spirit could happen. And potentially that is what we are seeing unfold in the last couple weeks in Kentucky. And then the other thing he points out is distinguishing the gospel from moralism, meaning moral, we, have, we do hold absolutes. There are things that are wrong. There are things that are good, yes. But we also need to hold in hand uh, grace, extravagant grace. That we hold people to moral absolutes, but we are also willing to forgive, as the story I shared at the beginning. But Keller does write, in light of the escape from political captivity, he does write this that I found intriguing. He says, American evangelicals have largely responded to the decline of the church by turning to a political project of regaining power in order to expel secular people from places of cultural influence. But a demographically shrinking church that identifies heavily with one narrow band of political actors will not be relevant in America. 
a dynamically growing body of believers making visible sacrifices for the good of their neighbors, on the other hand, made in, may indeed shape the culture mainly through attra- attraction rather than compulsion. Now, usually when these cases come up of like, should we have the Ten Commandments in public schools or in courts? I don't care. Uh, I kind of think that's compulsion. I think that's forcing something on someone in a, in a country that we pride ourselves on being separation of church and state, right? That freedom of religion. Uh, that, that is forcing something on someone. We wouldn't like that. You know, arguably, conservative evangelicals are retreating from public schools in a lot of areas because they feel like they are being forced a different doctrine. We use that language, right, indoctrination on some on the conservative side. So we don't like that. Therefore, we should not do that either. We should not force that on someone. That doesn't get anyone to worship God. Um, <laughs> I've never met someone that's like, hey, they rammed it down my throat, this, this, this. No, if anything, that's where a lot of people like my parents are, recovering Catholics, because it was shoved down their throats, rather than through attraction, an attractive way of living, an attractive way of loving. So anyways, that's the big one that he points out for the global church, the capital C church, that the resurrection gives us this sign of the transformation to come, but then this is how the church can tangibly seek to embody that here and now. Now, what does that look like for a local church, for the transfiguration? What does that look like for us? Well, where is Peter's attention fixed in this passage? Any, any ideas there on where? What is Peter looking at? His attention is fixed, yes, on Jesus, but he's also getting caught up with Moses and Elijah, right? He's getting caught up in other things. And when we read the passage, where is our attention fixed? We, I don't know about you, yes, Jesus transfigured I am, like, what does that even mean? Um, what does that even look like? Yeah, how can I even fathom or, or picture, imagine this scene in my head? But I also, my attention is also drawn, I don't know about you, but, but to why Peter offered to set up tents for people who aren't God. And one of the other Gospels, Jesus does rebuke Peter. For some reason, Matthew doesn't include that here. But still, that's, that's where my attention goes. Anyone else go there? Like, why is Peter? No? Just me. Okay. <laughs> I am just like, why is Peter setting up a, essentially a, a, a worship place? to confine these humans. Moses and, well, they're human. Well, they're still, we're we're still humans. You mean bodies? I would argue they had a body. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. No, no, I, I, I agree. I, I agree that's one potential route that's going through his head. Uh, I'm guessing his mind is uh, flooding as to what all this means and what we need to do. And oh my gosh. 
It's kind of like when you have unexpected company show up, right? And you're like, oh my gosh, my house is a mess. I need to put coffee on. Shoot, I don't even have coffee ground. Uh, do I have any baked goods that are like not totally from like two weeks ago, tucked in the back cupboard that we just decided that wasn't a good batch of cookies and we're not gonna finish them? Like that type of thing, you know? Like do I have anything for these people? That's where what I envision Peter is thinking here. But I think that's the point. Peter is getting caught up, and I think that's where the clouds come in, right? Where it kind of blocks out the others, and, and God, in a way, is divinely saying, you're getting caught up in some of the other stuff. This is about Jesus. This isn't about the other stuff. Don't get fixated on the other stuff. Peter's trying to keep things there, right? He's even trying to return to the old way, the way they can find presence of, uh, of, of deity, of God, of Yahweh in the Old Testament, And he's wanting to confine their presence to a physical uh, space. And so what does this mean for us uh, as a local church, as LifeBridge? Well, one potential thing. Life in Jesus for the church is not about trying to keep things here, right? We're trying to return to the good old days. We're trying to keep it as is. I think that's what Keller was getting at in that when, when we hold the method so tightly, when we say this is the method, it cannot change. Um, or even going back to something we had back in the day. When we're looking back, we're not looking forward, right? Obviously. But it's not, it's not what, where our eyes are to be fixed as well. And similar, just as Peter is looking back and trying to uh, live in this new this glimpse, he's getting a glimpse of the future, but is he looking to the future? No, he's looking back and saying, how can I get back to here? How can we get back to here? And Jesus, I mean, the clouds come in and, and cover his attention so that he sees, no, this is, look forward, Peter. Look towards Christ. Look towards the kingdom. Look towards the future resurrection. So for us, um, well, if we do this, and if we can do this, this is stuff that we have to constantly assess as elder teams and as churches. If we were to do this, if we were to keep trying to go backwards, uh, to keep trying to, or, or to stay where we're at, rather than be led by the Spirit, follow Christ, seek new um, ways for the resurrection to manifest new life here and now, where is our attention? Our attention isn't on God, right? It isn't on Jesus. It's on the past. And that's a different God. We are making, Peter essentially is making a God out of, out of something other than Jesus. A God of the way he, we think it should be, or the way things were. His eyes and our eyes could, if we are not careful, become fixed on something other than Jesus. The goal can be the glory days, the good old days, and not what Jesus has in store for us in the next chapter, what he is calling us to. See, it's not about Peter, it's not about Moses or Elijah. Even for us, as I was reading this passage my eyes went to Peter first, and I think this passage is, is telling me, no, it's about Jesus. Literally, what Peter is doing in this passage, Tyler, you're doing that. Get back to what this is about, future resurrection. And so for us, you know, we're, we're at an interesting time, right? Uh, you know, next week is my last Sunday. Um, it's, and I don't say that, I'm trying not to say that arrogantly, it's weird. Um, but, you know, for us as a church, right, we're, we're looking at 
uh, in two Sundays, you will have your fifth pastor in less than five years. Um, on paper, that doesn't look good, right? It doesn't sound good, and I, and I could understand that feels unsettling. And I don't want you to be unsettled by that. I don't want you to be discouraged by that. I think if we look back on that, that's where we get discouraged. We're, we're not fixing our eyes forward, future. Where are we going? If we get caught up in the past or even look to endeavor backwards um, to the way things were, and I don't know about you, but you know, I, we did this thing where we moved to Northern California when we first got married uh, from our home in Southern California, and then something happened back home with my immediate family, and so we relocated back for four months to Southern California. Ten months into marriage, we went and helped my parents for a bit. Within that ten-month period, it was so bizarre going back to your hometown having been absent for 10 months, how drastically things changed. And it was so sad for us because we felt so alone in Northern California. We were at a church that had no one in our age group, right, in our young 20s. We felt kind of lonely. Then we come home and we realize we're lonely even at home. There's no good old days. We were grasping for something that just wasn't there anymore. It was gone. It had already passed. And if we keep grasping for the past, we're letting the present become the past too without even trying to live into it. And so we, for us as LifeBridge, as, as you guys journey together, uh, as we um, depart soon, I encourage you not to look and endeavor backwards. You can look back and reflect and strategize and consider, but we're not striving for the glorious old days. Christ has a new, God has a new chapter for us, uh, and we are called to endeavor forward. What might the Spirit want to do in and through you in this next season? Um, and even, you know, it, you know that we, we've discussed over, the, and this is something that you guys will have, if the possibility comes that you can't uh, hire a full-time pastor, we can even get caught up in that, right? The method. You have to have a full-time pastor. It's not true. Most churches in human history have never had a staff pastor. Even today, in this point, in history, <laughs> almost over 90% of the churches in the world do not have a staff member. That's just how it is. Actually, in, in school, uh, they taught us, hey, you need to kind of have another trade because almost every church in America will not be able to hire you. I'm like, oh, so you mean I got to go to graduate school, get all this debt, and then I need to figure out something else I need to do to make money? Yeah, that's just kind of the future of Christendom in the States because the numbers are dipping. We're decreasing. Um, and so we're entering in this potential new horizon. That's okay. Don't be discouraged if that is one route. Um, we've been a part of churches that, man, the first plant we were a part of when we got married, um, it's no longer around. It was a thriving church. They planted a church, but then they died. Um, and they were an incredible movement going on there. Uh, but they since died out. And sometimes that happens. But then they birthed another church. But then we've been a part of a church where, man, they're just steady as it goes. Uh, I mean, what is consistent is the global church and being open. That church that shut down that we were with, um, they were holding things very tightly. I encourage you to not look back to strive for the good old days, but to hold your hands open, prayerfully ask on your knees together, what might the Spirit want from us? How can we keep the message the same, but consider 
you're at an interesting time where just as us, we're like, hey, the map is our, <laughs> we don't know where we're going. And in some ways it's scary, in some ways it's exhilarating to think we could go anywhere. And the same thing for you in this season. Hold that open before God. Allow him to speak into your lives and to what the future is for you. And here's the cool thing. I, I shared this one, one more thing. I got to wrap up. So sorry. The cool thing is you can get creative with this stuff. There are very tangible things in this town. The homeless shelter in Philadelphia, in New Philadelphia, needs a place. They need someone to partner with. You could be, you have a beautiful building with an unused upstairs. There are some very creative things that could happen there. Um, man, if you don't have <laughs> a full-time pastor, um, all of a sudden you're in the, the red, right? Or the black? No, the red. All of a sudden you're in a positive? That's red. That's the black? Oh, dang it. All of a sudden you're in the, but all of a sudden you're in the black. What could you do with that? Ivana wants to plant. Um, yeah, what could you do with that? Man, there's how many refugee crises, crises are about to commence, right? With Ukraine and now with the earthquake going on. I mean, partner with the homeless shelter. You can support church planners and unreached people groups. I mean, don't be discouraged. Don't limit the work that the Spirit can do in and through you to, man, it may not be exactly what I think. Because, man, most of the church in the, in the world operates in a very different manner than we do in the West, and that's okay. Perhaps the Spirit is moving the church in America to do things a little differently, to change the method by sharing that message in a different way. Uh, and then lastly, briefly, individually, what does the transfiguration, what is that hope of the resurrection carrying out here and now? What does that do for us now? Well, Eugene Peterson writes, what happens to Jesus happens to us, but it happens to us by the renewing of our mind. So what Peter, James, and John saw, that transfiguration, that transformation, it happens to our mind, our thinking, our, our attentions, and our affections in life. As we listen to him, as we look to him, as we linger with him, a transformation occurs, and the beauty that is his becomes ours. I don't have time, but read Romans 12 through 14, man. That is, that's where it's at, where it's talking this through more on a, on a practical level for Jesus' followers. That don't be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's that same word. I like the way N.T. Wright translates it. Don't let yourselves be squeezed into the shape dictated by the present age, including the present age of American church culture. Don't be confined to that, right? No, instead, draw near to Jesus. Spend time with Jesus. We're called followers or apprentices of Jesus. Apprentice under him. Learn the trade of being a Christ follower. Learn the character. Learn the conduct. How to think and act Christianly. Work out your own salvation. That is what that looks like for us here and now. We don't stay stagnant, nor do we look back for something. We look forward. We follow on in the way of Jesus. Uh, to conclude, in 2007, the Dirksons were contacted by the police. Uh, Candace's killer had been found. The DNA of a man with a history of sexual offenses matched DNA from the shed where Candace had been found over 20 years before. 
the trial brings vivid details of what he did to their daughter. Details evoke images, and the images evoke anger. One day, Wilma, the mother, if you forgot, expresses her anger and bitterness to a group of friends at her church in what she refers to as railing against the sexual insanity of it. I won't go into detail, but if you read the story, what he did was, yeah. And this gal, she said, it's not in this quote, but her story, bless her heart, said, you know, I'm a Mennonite. I didn't know any of these things. Uh, And it was a sweet little, like, she's like, I've never heard of some of these things that this man was into and that he carried out on my daughter how evil it was. And Malcolm writes, and then the, morning, the next morning, one of them called me and said, let's have breakfast, one of her friends at church. And she goes, no, we can't talk here. We've got to go to my apartment. So I, Wilma, I go to her apartment. And then she talked about her addiction to porn and sexual bondage and other much darker things that go forth, that resonate, relate with this gentleman. She had been in that world, so she understood it. She told me all about it, and then I remembered I loved her. We had worked in the ministry together. This whole dysfunction, this whole side of her had been hidden from me. Dirksen had been talking for a long time, and the emotion had begun to take its toll. She was talking slowly and softly now. She was very worried, Dirksen went on. She was was so scared. She had seen my anger at this man. And now, would I stay locked in that anger and direct it towards her? Would I reject her, too? To forgive her, she realized she had to forgive the man. She could not carve out exceptions for the sake of her moral convenience. I fought against it, she went on. I was reluctant. I'm not a saint. I'm not always forgiving. It's the last thing you want to do. It could have been so much easier to say, and then she makes a fist, uh, because... I would have had many more people on my side. That anger, that retribution. She concludes, uh, it would have been easier in the beginning, but then it would have gotten harder. I think we could have lost my husband. I think I would have lost my children. In some ways, I would be doing to others what he did to my daughter. Malcolm Gladwell summarized after his interview with her. He said, a woman who walks away from the promise of power finds the strength to forgive and save her friendship, her marriage, and her sanity. The world is turned upside down. And the cool thing about this is that Gladwell, at the time, had distanced himself from the faith. He grew up in the Christian faith. And he recounts, though, that it was one thing to read in a history book about people empowered by their faith. But it is quite another to meet an otherwise very ordinary person in the backyard of a very ordinary house who has managed to do something utterly extraordinary. Here I was writing about people of extraordinary circumstances, and it slowly dawned on me that I can have that too. That story is very different than what we discussed. But from up in the sky, down on the ground to these relational um, tragedies, we see the power of the resurrection, the power of the transfiguration, the transformation manifesting in stories like this family. We see the power of the resurrection um, affect someone, a skeptic, a public thinker like Malcolm Gladwell, to the point where he says, this can't not be true. 
big deal. I'm going to pray for us. O God of the covenant, the cloud of your splendor and the fire of your love, revealed your Son on the mountain heights. Transform our lives in his image. Write your law of love on our hearts and make us prophets of your glory, that we may lead others in your presence. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the LifeBridge podcast. For more information about our church, please visit lifebridgedover.org. There you'll be able to find out more about the church community, our ministries, ways to get involved, recommended resources, and to give. Be sure to subscribe to receive new episodes directly into your podcast feed. While we are glad that you're checking out our podcast feed, we believe that the New Testament teaches that church worship is to be experienced weekly in person within your local church community. Thus, we encourage you to either join us in person for Sunday morning worship or to find and commit to a local gospel-centered church community in your neighborhood. Thanks.